Well, hey, welcome. It's another Sunday evening, and uh, I hope you're enjoying the holidays. I know I am. I was at a concert earlier and uh, had a great old time singing Christmas carols and doing all that good stuff. It's fun to be here, and I'm glad to be here. My name is Charlotte, and I'm going to be your hostess for the next hour. We're going to be reading from uh, this week because we finished uh, Dickens' Christmas Carol last weekend. And I decided that would be kind of fun, excuse me, so I get to read it from Debbie McCumber's Mrs. Miracle. I have only seen the movie of this. I have not uh, read the book yet. So this is my first time reading the book. But uh, I'm excited to do it because I love the movie so much. I've, I've, seen, I've seen the two movies and I understand. Excuse me. I've seen the first two movies. And I go, oh, there's a third one. But I know there's a new one coming out with the different actress because the woman that played Mrs. Miracle originally has passed away. So they've got a different actress playing Mrs. Miracle. So I haven't had the opportunity to see the new movie yet. But I just I just loved the first movie. Just loved it. So I, I'm pretty sure I'm going to enjoy reading the book. So give it a couple more minutes before we start. You know, uh, we are the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento. We are, we're 35 strong in the state of California, which puts us almost in every major city. You know, we, we have people available. Um, we're nonprofit. We don't take any any coinage to investigate. We just do it to help people. That's our goal, our life. Uh, we also have um, members or, or, or branches in Washington, Oregon, Nevada, and Hawaii, which is kind of fun. Someday I'll get to go to Hawaii and look for ghosts there. But anyway, um, that's us in a nutshell as a team. If you want to see the kind of work we do, you can visit us at www californiahaunts.org and we also have a regular uh, radio show, California Haunts Radio that we do uh, Monday through Thursday with really cool guests and uh, I think you might be interested in that so you can check that out at, at, the, at our website at www.californiahauntsradio.com also uh, we're looking for YouTube subscribers so when you're watching these videos if you feel the need you, and you like what we're doing hit that subscribe button and uh, I really appreciate it. And if, if you really like what we're doing, share us with some of your friends or let your friends know about us so that they can hit the subscribe button because we're looking to get our subscribers up and all that good stuff. Anyhow, I want to welcome you all. So without further ado, we're going to get into Debbie McCumber's Mrs. Miracle. And as you can see in the background, I've got my fireplace going, right? So uh, saddle, up to the, saddle up to the bar, boys. Chapter 1. I told you not to swear, you little demon. Seth Webster grabs his sins by the scruffs of their necks in order to keep his squirming twins apart. It demanded all his strength to keep the two fists, to keep the two fists flying from attacking each other. Mr. Webster, Mrs. Hampson, his housekeeper, the third in as many of us, stood with her hands braced against her hips, her mouth thin with disapproval. That's hardly the example to be giving your children. Truth be known, Seth could never agree with her more. But there was a limit to just how much one man could take. The minute he'd walked into the house, he'd discovered his six-year-old twins rolling around the bedroom floor, intent on murdering one another. The woman was no help. She'd stood with her back braced against the wall and barked orders, sounding incredibly like a Yorkshire Terrier. Before he could fully judge the wisdom of his actions, Seth entered the fray. Within seconds, his patient was shot. His patients were shot. Judge swore. Seth swore. Mrs. Hempson gasped, shocked at the very tips of her toes. Jason stuck his tongue out at his brother and looked well pleased with himself. Judge retaliated. His tongue resembled that of a gila monster. Judge, Jason, stop this instant. The children squirmed. The fight went out of Judge first, and his shoulders slumped forward. I'm sorry, Daddy. His son scuffed the toe of his Nike against the bedroom carpet. His gaze lowered to the floor. The love Seth felt for his children tightened the band around his heart. I was wrong too, he admitted, affectionately, miss affectionately mussing the boy's brownish red hair. The last few months had been a trial for all three of them. His in-laws had raised the twins for the past four years following Pamela's death. Jed and Jason had been toddlers at the time of the traffic accident, needy and demanding. Seth couldn't care for them properly and maintain his engineering position with Boeing. 
having the two move in with Sharon and Jerry has seemed the perfect solution. His own parents traveled extensively and were unable to help. With time and effort, the twins had adjusted to life without their mother, something Seth had yet to manage. I need to talk to you privately following dinner, Mrs. Hampson announced stiffly as she walked past him on her way back to the kitchen. She's going to quit, Jason announced as soon as the housekeeper was out of sight. The same way Mrs. Cooper quit, Jen added, and Mrs. Larson, and everyone else, Seth added silently. He felt as if the entire world had quit on him. And it all started when Sharon had phoned last July and abruptly announced it was time the twins moved back with him. It was, a, it was long past time, Seth suspected, but he'd grown comfortable living the responsibility, leaving the responsibility for the care of his children with his in-laws. Comfortable in his role of weekend Disney dad. With Judd and Jason due to start first grade in the fall, the time for transition was now. And the month since, Seth wondered if he was ever meant to be a father. He appreciated his in-laws' help. They'd done more for him and the twins than he'd ever be able to repay. But Jerry had recently retired, and the two had already sacrificed four years of their lives. Their help had gotten the fifth through the worst of the child-rearing years, or so he believed. He'd taken a crash course in this parenting business and discovered it wasn't really nearly as easy as it sounded. It shocked Seth how short his patience could be. Within five minutes of promising himself to set a good example, he'd referred to his own son as a little demon. Unfortunately, the term fit Judge to a T. The lab was full of piss and vinegar into everything. Nothing was sacred. Jason was the follower. On his own, he was quiet and shy, but with his brother forging ahead, he was quick to follow. It had been much easier to consider himself a decent father when he was separated by a thousand miles. He called often, mailed the kids letters, and spent as much time with them as his schedule would allow. The lessons had come swiftly and sharply that summer when Judd and Jason had moved back in with him. The quick succession of living housekeepers was testimony to exactly how much of a failure he'd been. Are you going to wash my mouth out with soap? Judd asked, making a face as though he could already taste the unpleasantness. Seth sat down on the edge of the bottom bunk bed and weighed his decision. He can't, Jason assured his twin, flopping down on the mattress beside him. Dad said the S word. Is the F word worse than the S word? Jason looked at Seth for the answer. The hell if I know. Judd's eyes widened with, with warning, and he whispered, Watch it, Dad. Mrs. Hampson doesn't approve of the H word either. It don't matter, because she's going to quit anyway. This bit of wisdom came from Jason. The kid was probably right, too. Sitting back against the wall, Seth draped an arm around each of his children's shoulders and released a jagged sigh. What are we going to do with... What are we going to do now, Judd asked. We need a housekeeper, Jason added. His son turned dark. Round, uh, turned dark round eyes to Seth, looking for him to supply the answers. Hey, she hasn't quit yet, Seth tried to sound optimistic, but doubted that he'd convinced anyone. They've seen it all too often before before not to recognize the symptoms. The housekeeper wanted out. We tried to be good. I know. Seth was sympathetic. He'd done his best, too, and had repeatedly fallen short. Earlier that week, Seth had stopped off at the grade school for a parent-teacher conference and learned that his children's behavior wasn't that much different in school from what it was at home. The term their teacher had used to describe Jed was high-spirited, which was later translated to disorderly, disruptive, ill-behaved, and stubborn. His brother was a woman accomplice. The woman assured him there was nothing malicious about their behavior, but the twins tended to be affectionate troublemakers. It wasn't as if Seth hadn't noticed. On a conscious level, he realized that his behavior had a great deal to do with the recent upheaval in their young lives. They had been indulged by Sharon and Jerry, and had been thrust back in the back in the life of the father who buried his grief in his job. Following Pamela's accident. Seth had steadily climbed the ladder of success within the Boeing Airplane Company. He was the youngest senior engineer in the company's history. To further complicate matters, he'd recently been assigned to the Firecracker Project. It wasn't uncommon for him to put in 50 to 60 hours a week on the top-secret project Boeing was developing, was developing for the Department of Defense. With the arrival of the twins, Seth felt fortunate to get in a regular eight-hour day. 
His work had suffered, along with his health, his disposition, and just about everything else. I'd better go see if I can smooth the waters of Mrs. Hampson, he said, inhaling deeply. This wouldn't be fun. The middle-aged woman possessed all the tact of a Sherman tank. She lived and breathed discipline. Not that Seth was opposed to a little order. Anyone who could bring harmony to the chaos and had taken control of his life was welcome indeed. Mrs. Hampson, however, was better suited to whipping wild recruits into shape than dealing with two six-year-olds and one insecure dad. He'd say one thing for the woman. She'd lasted twice as long as any of the previous housekeepers. One woman had left after only two nights. Another, an older, more mature grandmotherly type, had stayed as long as two weeks. In Mrs. Hampson's case, it had been an entire six weeks. He'd never been fond of the crotchety old biddy, but the Seth suspected Mrs. Hampson knew that. The fact was, she'd probably get a good deal of satisfaction in leaving him in the lurch. Crow had never been one of his favorite dishes, and knowing Mrs. Hampson, she'd enjoy serving it to him on a dome-covered silver platter. Taking a few moments to compose his thoughts, Seth stepped into his study and slumped into the leather wing-back chair next to the fireplace. It wasn't supposed to happen like this. What the kids really needed was someone who would enjoy their boisterous nature, a woman who would appreciate their creativity and spontaneity, someone who would laugh with them instead of trying to stuff them into a mold, a mother. His head fell forward at the weight of his burden. Seth remembered the day he and Pamela had gone to the doctor for the ultrasound and had revealed two tiny but distinct babies. Seth's first reaction had been sheer wonder and an incredible breathtaking sense of excitement and joy. Twins. They were having twins. Only later had the, had the way of the responsibility overtaken him. He'd been able to hide his fears from Pamela. He'd even managed to sweep them aside from himself until after Jed and Jason's birth. It helped that Pamela was a natural mother, loving, patient, and perfect. Then, without warning, this flawless world had shattered on a rain-slick street when his wife's car had slid out of control and she'd slammed into a telephone pole. Her death, Seth had been told, had been instantaneous. The children, tucked securely in their car seats, didn't receive so much as a scratch, but in those tragic seconds, his wife was gone. His wife and his very heart. His life was as ruined as the twisted metal that had once been her vehicle. In retrospect, it might have been easier to deal with Pamela's death had there been someone to blame. A drunk driver, a speeder, anyone to focus his anger and frustration on. But there had been no one. In the beginning, he sought to blame God. He longed to shake his fist at the sky and damn him for stealing away his very heart. For a time, anger had consumed Seth's soul. Shortly after her funeral, he had sold the piano. Now, four years later, it seemed a bit dramatic to have given up his music. But he simply lost a desire for it. Music was something he shared with Pamela. His world had felt the void of all that had once brought joy. And in his pain, he destroyed everything that had connected him with his dead wife. It was his way of telling God to take that. To take that. Seth's gaze fell across the room to a row of bookcases. The hardbound version of C.S. Lewis's The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe captured his attention. The well-read, much-loved book had been Pamela's favorite, one she treasured since childhood. From the moment they learned she was pregnant, she talked of one day sitting with her children at her side and reading them the stories she loved so much. Seth ran a hand down his face and closed his eyes as he dealt with a fresh wave of pain. Not for the first time, he wondered if it would ever get better. If he'd, always, if he'd always feel this raw-edged anguish when he remembered Pamela. The years hadn't eased it. Having the children with him hadn't lessened his sense of loss. If anything, their arrival increased his awareness of what he would never have. He carried his grief with him the way some men toted around a briefcase. How different his life would be if Pamela had lived. In many ways, it would have been kinder if he buried if they buried him along with his wife. He walked over the old bookcase and slowly removed the book by C.S. Lewis. The edge of the spine was tattered by love and time. Carefully, he laid open the novel in his palm. Inside, a six-year-old Pamela had carefully printed her name in large square letters. The twins were six, and the twins were six. 
The sharp pain punched Seth's heart. He'd done such an effective job of burying his grief that when it bubbled to the surface, it almost always caught him unaware. Instead of replacing the book back inside the oak bookcase, Seth carried it to the desk and set it carefully in a bottom drawer. He couldn't quite explain why. He didn't want to be sucker punched a second time by glancing across the room and finding Pablo's favorite childhood book in his face. He had enough to deal with. Unsure how to handle the situation with Mrs. Hampston, Seth walked into the kitchen. You wanted to talk to me? He struck a casual pose and leaned against the counter. Mrs. Hampston, Hampstead, sorry, Hampston, didn't possess an ounce of fat. Everything about her was severe, right down to the polish on her black, spit shine shoes. Disapproval radiated from her the way fire, the way fire warmed the room. As you might have guessed, she announced, I find my services to be neither appreciated nor... That is just so. The kids and I think you're wonderful, Seth countered, hoping God would forgive him the why. I couldn't be more grateful for your help. And I beg to differ, Mr. Webster. No amount of coaxing had persuaded her to call Seth by his first name. But then, he'd never been able to think of her as Bertha either. It seems apparent to me... If to no one else, she continued stiffly, then I can no longer stay. But you're wrong. We please don't attempt to sway me. My mind is made up. I'd be willing to offer you a substantial raise, Seth said, attempting to sound contrite and appreciative and failing. He feared on both counts. Mrs. Hampson hesitated, then cocked her chin and gave him a look of mild disgust, as if she'd just been deeply insulted by the mere suggestion that she could be seduced with money. I'd appreciate it if you'd stay until after the holidays, he added, growing more desperate. Mr. Webster, apparently you didn't understand me when I said I'd reached this decision. I wasn't looking for you to change my mind. I refused to be bribed. Bribed? Seth did his best to sound confused. Exactly. If her nose got any closer to the ceiling, she'd be in serious danger of having a bird roost in. I cannot tell you how sorry I am, Seth sincerely hoped he sounded regretful, but he doubted he'd, he'd be any more successful in pulling the wool over this woman's eyes than he was with his own children. I'm afraid I don't share your regrets. Of all the positions I've held in my 15-year history of domestic service, I could never remember having to deal with a worse pair of disciplined children. I understood when I accepted the position that the twins were considered a handful, but this is ridiculous. There are only six. Exactly. Six going on thirteen. I don't have a moment's peace from dawn to dusk. Those two are constantly under threat. They're savages. I tell you, savages. I've already explained to the kids that goldfish can't live in jello, Seth said. I realized it was a shock to open the refrigerator and find the goldfish bowl filled with lemon jello and three small fish. The problem with the goldfish was the tip of the iceberg, she responded, and grimaced. Okay, okay. So maybe those water bazookas were such a good idea. I didn't think they'd turn them on you. By sheer willpower, Seth managed to squelch a smile. One gloriously sunny autumn afternoon, he had been washing the car while the twins raced across Kingdom Hall, Kingdom Come, soaking each other with their fancy water guns. When Mrs. Hampson stepped out of the porch, Judd and Jason had guilelessly turned their weapons on her. To put it mildly, the housekeeper had not been amused. The Seth's way of thinking, a little water never hurt anyone. It isn't the jello incident or the water bazookas. It isn't even having to routinely dig little green army men out of the bathtub drain. It's you. Me? Seth demanded defensively. He'd bent over backward to keep the peace with Mrs. Timstead. And now she was accusing him. You know absolutely nothing about being a father. Seth's mouth snapped shut. Like all good military strategists, she attacked his weakest point. He had no argument. The twins are your children, Mrs. We Mr. Webster, not your friends and not cute pets. They need a firm guiding hand. As far as I can see, you're no example for them. None whatsoever. Swear swearing is one thing, but to put it bluntly, you're a slob. Seth knew she was right. He was an absent-minded professor, his head filled with work, the kids, and everything else. He didn't mean to be untidy. It just happened that way. 
She constantly lost and found herself. Mundane things like remembering to fill up the car with gas escaped him. The other mornings were discussed. Mrs. Hampson had found his shoes in the refrigerator. Seth they would recall putting them there. If you'd be willing to give me another chance, I've already assured you I won't. Yes, but finding another housekeeper might prove difficult just now. I'm sure it will be, but that isn't my problem. Seth leaned against the door, wondering where to turn next. Mrs. Hampson had been his last hope. The agency didn't have anyone else to send. He didn't know what he would do, where he would turn. Frankly, Mr. Webster, the woman stated smugly, it isn't a housekeeper you need, it's a miracle. Chapter 2 Reba, there's a call for you online. Online 1. Sorry about that. Reba, there's a call for you online 1. Reba Maxwell's gaze remained fixed on, on the parking lot outside the strip mall where her travel agency was located. She saw him again, the mystery man who dominated her thoughts for weeks. The one who made her smile. Half the time, she wondered if he knew where he was. He climbed out of the car and then stared... He climbed out of the car and then stared at the storefront as though attempting to remember what he was supposed to buy. She knew nothing about him, not his name, or if he was married, or he worked or lived, nothing. He stopped off two or three times a week at the supermarket next door to her agency. He had to be married because a single man couldn't possibly require that many groceries. He was a stranger, yet for reasons Rita couldn't understand or explain, she felt physically and emotionally drawn to him. He wasn't all that attractive. Still, she was fascinated by the strength of character that seemed to radiate from him. Even from a distance, she noticed that his jaw was strong, his cheekbones high and pronounced, and his lips full. He wasn't especially tall, and he didn't possess any of the other attributes that generally interested a woman. Nevertheless, she waited day after day, hoping to catch a glimpse of him. He wasn't even her type, she reasoned, impatient with herself. She'd learned her lesson long enough and avoided those high-powered executives, always so crisp and formal, always in control. Read the line one, Jane Preston reminded of her. She pulled her attention away from the window and reached for the phone. This is Reba, she answered, in a business-like tone. Hello, darling. Her, mo her mother, her mother. Hello, Mom, she answered, keeping her voice even and unemotional. She knew what was coming, had been expecting it, and dreaded the confrontation. And all that was sure to follow. How are you feeling? Her mother sounded as if Reba had recently recovered from a life-threatening illness, as if she suffered with an impossibly fragile health, if not physically, then emotionally, which was a greater insult. She gritted her teeth and prayed for patience before she answered. I'm fine. I suppose you want to talk about Christmas. No need to lay the inevitable. She preferred to deal with the unpleasantness now and be done with it. Well, yes, Joan Maxwell said and hesitated, her frustration grating through the telephone lines. I would really like it if we could have the family Christmas this year. With your Aunt Gertie and Uncle Bill coming, it would be so awkward with you and your sister. Reva's jaw tensed. We can have a real Christmas. Oh, Reva, does that mean you're willing to put aside your difference with Vicky? And we can have a family Christmas, she repeated without emotion. We'll do exactly as we have for the last four years. Vicky and her husband can choose to spend either Christmas Eve or Christmas Day with you, Aunt Gertie and Uncle Bill, then I'll be free to join you and everyone else when they aren't there. Her mother's disappointment was palpable. I see. I don't have to come home for Christmas, Mother, Reba returned, unwilling to be manipulated by her parent or anyone else. Really, it was ridiculous seeing that she lived in the same South End community as Seattle. Reba visited her parents on a routine basis. It wasn't as if she'd saved the holidays for her annual pilgrimage home. Despite the differences with her older sister, Reba made an effort to stop by her parents at least every other month with one condition. She'd go as long as Vicky wasn't there. Not come home for Christmas? Her mother echoed. Your father and I would be so disappointed. It's just that, well, your dad hasn't been feeling well lately. And it would do us both a world of good if you and your sister would. Mom, stop. This wasn't a topic Reba wished to discuss. Not when she'd already been through it with a million times. 
We both know what Vicky did, and you don't know everything. Listen, Reba returned, irritated that her mother insisted on pursuing the issue, insisted on taking her sister's side. I told you this before, and I meant it. If you're going to phone me to talk about Vicky, then I'll hang up. I've got a business to run. But it's been four years. Four and a half, Reba amended. It wouldn't take much effort for her to calculate it right down in a minute. A lifetime would pass the way, and she'd never forget what her sister, her own flesh and blood, had done to her. She wasn't going to forget. Not ever. God helped them both, but she wasn't going to forgive her sister either. To her credit, Vicky had attempted to repair the damage, but it was too little too late. Three times her sister had come to her seeking forgiveness. Three times Reba had rejected her apology. What Vicky had done was unforgivable. It had been so hurtful and cruel that whatever closeness they once shared had forever been destroyed. Even as youngsters, the two sisters had been competitive. Because she was almost two years older, Vicky had the advantage when it came to sports. But that didn't keep Reba from trying. She made the varsity basketball team with a high school cheerleader and track star the same as Vicky. But she worked hard for those accomplishments, unlike Vicky, who was naturally athletic. Over the course of her high school and college career, Reba had nearly killed herself in an effort to keep pace with her sister's accomplishments. Both girls were evenly paired in the academic realm. Each had been offered full scholarships to the University of Washington. Their rivalry, although often keen, had always been friendly. Reba liked to think that they brought out the best of one another. Each challenged the other to give 100% to their individual endeavors. Until Reba started dating John Goddard. Even saying his name mentally produced a, look, a hard lump in her throat. Briefly, Reba closed her eyes until the pain had been in his past. In retrospect, she was willing to admit, albeit grudgingly, that part of John's attraction had been that Vicky had been attracted to him, too. Her sister had joked that she'd been the one to see John first. Her teasing had taken on a decidedly sharp tone as Reba and John's relationship turned more serious. Later, when Reba was head over heels in love with John, she suspected Vicky's feelings for the, ar for the architect went beyond sisterly love. She didn't realize how accurate that impression was until... I do so wish you girls would tell your differences. It's settled, mother. Reba said starkly, emphatically. As Sandler is going to get. But Vicky's your sister. Not anymore. Reba, sweetheart, why do you continue to carry this grudge when John is out of your life? Out of Vicky's. He's married to someone else now. Neither one of you has talked to the man in years, and yet you continue to wage war with your sister. Reba closed her eyes, hating it when her mother insisted on dredging up the past. For her part, she was perfectly content to leave matters as they were. You can't go on like this. It was the same argument, second verse. Her mother played the familiar work record each Christmas. Each Christmas, Frankly, Reba didn't want to hear it. Nothing her mother said or did would ever cancel the heartache and pain her own sister had brought into her life. What she said was true. John was out of the picture, but the blame for what had happened fell squarely, solidly on Vicky's shoulders. Reba had wiped both Vicky and John for her life. The two deserved each other. She fully expected Vicky to take advantage of the situation to marry John herself when she stepped aside. It had come as something of a surprise when her sister had married Doug Minden a year later. But then, it really wasn't much of a puzzle. Vicky hadn't truly been interested in John. She just hadn't wanted Reba to have him. Her sister had achieved what she'd set off to do, and that was to ruin any chance Reba had of finding happiness. I do wish you'd reconsider, her mother said, breaking, breaking into her thoughts once more. If you don't do it for your father or me, then do it for your aunt and uncle. They think the world of you and Vicky. I can't, she said, and because she knew her response was an invitation to argue, she added, I won't. She did feel a certain amount of regret, but she refused to turn, turn back time. Nothing her sister said or did now would make up for the bitterness of her betrayal. They might have been competitive, but they were still sisters. Flesh and blood didn't do what Vicky had done to her. The silence stretched until it felt as if the tension would snap. It means so much to your father and me. 
Reba, close your eyes. Mom, please stop. Don't you realize how difficult it is, Aunt Hess, her mother whispered. We love you both. I know, Mom, and I'm sorry. I really am. But I can't share the holidays with you and Vicky there, too. Not, not the season of love, peace, and goodwill. My presence would be a lie. I'm sure Vicky and her family would be more comfortable without me. Again, Reba felt her mother's disappointment, but she saw no reason to give her parents hope. As far as she was concerned, she had no sister. He was back. Reba's gaze followed follow the man she'd seen a moment earlier. He got in the grocery store and now walked out carrying a single bag. He paused, scratch, he scratched the side of his head and continued toward the parking lot. If she didn't know him better, she'd think he'd forgotten where he parked his car. He was just what she needed, even used comic relief. But Reba, her mother was unwilling to drop the subject of Christmas. This was bound to be the first of many such conversations. Mom, don't. This is hard enough. Let me know if Vicky wants to come Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, and I'll be there when she won't. If that isn't agreeable, I'll simply skip Christmas this year. The holidays weren't that important to her anyway, not any longer. You can't do that. Just let me know if Vicky plans on being at the house, all right? Her mother's sigh was deep and heartfelt, heavy with defeat and sadness. Tell me, what would it take to heal this rift between you and your sister? Reba didn't hesitate, not for a moment. The answer's simple. It would take a miracle. Chapter 3 The doorbell jingled at the worst possible moment Seth was doing his... Seth was doing his dabness to get dinner on the table. Cooking had never been his forte. Trying as he might, he couldn't manage a simple casserole without forgetting one ingredient. It was already past seven and everyone was cranky and hungry. The house was a disaster, which was no surprise, and he was in no frame of mind to deal with the Avon lady. Jason had taken it upon himself to help him by pouring the milk. Seth had tried to tell him he was too small to manage a gallon container, but Jason wouldn't listen. By the time he turned to stop him, it was too late. I'll get it, Judge shouted, tossing aside the Nintendo game as he rushed to the front door. Two seconds later, he glanced over his shoulder and yelled at the top of his lungs, It's for you, some lady! Seth jerked off the apron, set aside, oh, set aside the milk-soaked sponge, and stopped at the front door. Yes, he muttered impatiently, without looking. He never did understand why salespeople found it convenient to call during the dinner hour. Surely research would tell them how irritating it was to have a meal disrupted. Mr. Webster, older grandmotherly type, hold on, Mr. Webster? An older grandmotherly type stood under the golden ray of the porch light. Her eyes were warm and kind, her smile wide and friendly. She carried a wicker basket under one arm and waited expectantly for him to respond. Seth couldn't take his eyes off her. The porch light appeared to enshrine her as if she were the source of light which, of course, was ludicrous. She was, storybook, she was the storybook image of the hated, um, he, uh, he hated to say it, Mother Goose. She was round and soft, her gray hair pinned into a loose bun, with dimples and the most loving eyes he had ever seen. I'm Seth Webster, he said, after an awkward moment. I thought you must be. I'm Emily Merkel. The agency sent me. The agency? Seth couldn't believe his good fortune. There was a God, and he was willing to overlook Seth's bumbling attempts at fatherhood, willing to give him one last chance to redeem himself. Before she could find an excuse to leave, he grabbed the new housekeeper by the arm, dragged her inside the house. Apparently, Mrs. Hampstead hadn't had time to complete the, the complaint she against him. In the past week, he telephoned the employment agency a dozen times, only to be told he had already gone through every domestic employee the company had had. had it wasn't about to question his good fortune now. Welcome, welcome. No truer words ever had been spoken. She glanced about a look of shock on her face. Oh, my. Seth viewed the room with fresh eyes. A load of clean laundry littered the sofa. Jason had attempted to fold the towels and had decided to iron them first. Seth had discovered it just in time to prevent him from burning down the house. As a result, three fluffy yellow bath towels showed the charred black imprint of an iron. Of an iron. While Seth had been occupied cooking dinner, Judge decided to help his brother full clothes. Unfortunately, his assistance consisted of hauling out the drawers from every dresser in the house. 
By the time Seth had discovered what the two were doing, clothes, clothes cluttered the carpet and furniture until the room resembled Feline's basement during the biggest sale of the year. Dinner's ready. You'll, you'll join us, won't you? Seth said quickly, fearing his new housekeeper would turn tail and run before he could convince her to stay. On second thought, canned tomato soup and toasted cheese sandwiches revealed exactly how desperate he was for help. I realize it's inconvenient for me to arrive at the dinner hour. Inconvenient? No way, he countered swiftly. By now, she must have guessed the truth. You're welcome any time. Jeff stood beside him, but Jason had wrapped his arms around his leg and held on with the strength of a little constrictor. Walking was a shade difficult with Jason attached to his thigh, but Seth managed to pretend nothing was amiss. He wanted to look as though he often moped across the house with a six-year-old connected to his leg. I hope you don't mind, but I decided to bring dinner along with me. Seth's gaze dropped in the Red Riding Hood style basket draped over her arm. A tantalizing set of rosemary and sage walked lazily toward him. Excuse me, I do this. Okay. It's a specialty of mine, chicken pot pie. She advanced into the kitchen and set the basket on the only clear spot available on a the countertop. If the living room was in mild disarray, the kitchen was in chaos. Spilled milk splashed across the table, splashed across the tabletop, looked like a work of modern art. What it managed to see through the, what it managed to see through pooled on the floor beneath. Dirty dishes filled the sink, and the groceries he, groceries he purchased two days earlier cluttered the countertops along with discarded remnants from breakfast. No one had bothered to tell him milk-soaked cereal that dried on the sides of the bowl required a blowtorch to remove. I'll have this mess cleaned up before you know it, he promised. Mrs. Merkel dismissed his offer with a brisk hand gesture and turned her head. But Seth thought he might have seen her roll her eyes. You're Jed, and this must be Jason, she said, grinning at the children. She removed the hat pin from her no-nonsense hat and set it aside. The children were either mesmerized or terrified. Seth couldn't decide which. They stared up at her with their mouths hanging open. Children, you can help by setting the table, Mrs. Merkel instructed as she casually unfastened the large round buttons of her dark wool coat. She slipped it from her arms and carried it into the living room along with her hat and purse and laid them over the back of the sofa. While she was out of the room, Seth dumped the tomato paste, the tomato paste consistency soup down the sink, watching it gurgle like thick toxic waste as the pipe sucked it down. He whirled around guiltily when Mrs. Merkel returned, forgetting for the moment that Jason was planted through his leg. His weight, although slight, nearly knocked him off balance, and he caught himself by gripping hold of the edge of the counter. <sighs> Seeming not to notice either him or the twins, Mrs. Merkel went about readying dinner. She appeared to be grumbling under her breath. She placed the chicken pot pie in the oven to warm, wiped the table free of milk, and organized the kitchen with a skill and dexterity that left Seth astonished. He wanted to help, wanted to prove he wasn't entirely worthless, but he couldn't stop staring. The housekeeper moved with an effortless ease about the room while he stood with the children, watching, or with his mouth gaping open in sheer wonder. After what seemed less than five minutes, what seemed like less than five minutes, she had dinner on a clean table and in a near spotless kitchen. Dinner's ready, she announced, turning to face him and the children. It's a miracle, Seth mused. It wasn't until he heard the sound of his own voice that he realized he'd spoken aloud. Are you a miracle, Jen asked the housekeeper all right? Mrs. Merkel chuckled softly. Now that, my fine fellow, is a matter of opinion. Mrs. Miracle, Jason announced, offering the new housekeeper a slight smile. As far as Seth was concerned, the woman's arrival couldn't have been anything but a divine providence. Mrs. Hampstead had left a week earlier. Seven days and as far a week earlier, seven days, and as far as Seth was concerned, the Middle Ages had passed faster. He tried to work a regular thirty hour week, but his involvement with the firecracker project required far more of his time and effort than allowed that than that allowed the routine schedule. He'd been bringing what he could home with him and working until all hours in the morning, overdosing on caffeine and managing on four or five hours sleep at night. As a result, he shortchanged his children and his employer, and he was killing himself in the process. And then the week of this, and he'd be a candidate for the living bin. Jed and Jason didn't need to be encouraged to take their places at the table. His children weren't fools. 
dinner, especially one not cooked by their father, put them on their best behavior. Once everyone was seated, Mrs. Merkel opened the oven door and brought out the hot, bubbling chicken pot pie. The crust was brown to perfection, and the tantalizing gravy leaked up through the sides. The scent all but made his knees go weak. Seth didn't need to be urged to place his napkin in his lap and grip hold of his fork in eager, in eager anticipation. Wow, Judge, Judge whispered, and looked to his dad. His tongue moistened, his lips and his eyes sparkled with eager anticipation. Afterwards, Seth would have been hard-pressed to say when he'd enjoy the meal more. He supposed he should be asking his new housekeeper for references, but he was too busy enjoying his dinner to take the time. She had a kind on his face, but he'd been fooled before. And again, she could well be the good-hearted, generous soul he'd requested from the beginning. Frankly, he wasn't keen on the agency's placement tactics. They waited until he was at his wit's end before sending him a new housekeeper. Since he was paying top dollar, one would think they'd want to please him. This is good, Sis said, and helped himself a second. It's an old family recipe that I've updated. Seth would have polished off a third slice of the succulent pie, but he was already stuffed. Placing his hands on his stomach, he excused himself and scooted back to his chair. I'll help, Mrs. Merkel, Mrs. Merak, Mrs. Mrs. Miracle, Jason burst forth triumphantly. I'll help too, Judge insisted. Always before, he showed me the success and assisted dishes for women's work. Even when Seth was up to his armpits and suds, risking dishwater hands, they had refused to help. This attitude, Seth suspected, was the result of living with their grandparents for the last several years. Jerry Palmer's outdated views of what was and wasn't fitting work for the male population had unfortunately lived off of his grandsons. You can both help, Mrs. Merkel decided, pushing up her sleeves. When we're finished, will you read to us? One dinner after a week of his cooking was all it took that went over his children, Seth noticed. You read too? To hear Jason talk, the woman's talents were unlimited. To hear Jason talk, the woman's talents were unlimited. Seth had tried reading to his children before bed, but the only one he put to sleep was himself. He'd get warm and comfortable, and before he knew it, his eyes would start to droop and his head would nod. The next thing he knew, the twins would slip away silently and decide to help him by rewiring the house or turning the washer into a bread-making machine. Will you be taking your coffee in the family room, Mr. Webster? She asked. Yes, please. It wasn't until he was seated on the leather recliner that Seth wondered how it was his new housekeeper knew he routinely drank a cup of coffee with the Indian newspaper following dinner. But then, it wasn't such an unusual habit, Seth suspected. Half the male population read the Indian paper over a cup of freshly brewed coffee. Mrs. Merkel carried a streaming mug into him a few minutes later. I imagine you have a number of questions you'd like me to answer. She said as she set the mug on the coaster. If you don't mind, I'd like to wait until I tidied up the kitchen and got the children down for the night. Of course, she was right. He should have a long list of questions, important ones. Naturally, he'd want to read her references. These were his children, his own flesh and blood, his very reason for living. He needed to be sure he wasn't entrusting the twins to the care of a serial murderer. Mrs. Merkel? Nah. A woman who could cook up a chicken pot pie that good was a gift from God. And who was who was he to question the miracle? Oh, he'd make a few basic inquiries. Listen to her answers, but it would all be for show. The employment agency had routinely screened their applicants. They would have already completed a background check and handle the necessary paperwork. Besides, any questions he might have about the suitability of the housekeeper concerned the concern that old Benny Hanston. Oh, just jumped on me. Hang on. All right. He never had cared for the woman, and it was all too apparent. She'd been similarly inclined to dislike him. Although her leaving had been inconvenience, it was for the best. Seth dozed off while reading the sports section and woke up to the sound of giggles and laughter. With his eyes closed, he tried to picture what his life would have been like had Paolo lived. Surely he would feel discontented, disrelaxed. Resting after a long day at his office, his stomach full, his wife at his side, with the sound of his children's laughter echoing through the house. 
The picture was almost complete, except that he felt so desperately alone. Pamela was forever gone. His mother-in-law was right. It had been time to send the children back to him. He hadn't realized how much he missed the twins. For four years, he buried his grief and his loss in his job and reaped large financial rewards. The time had come for him to break out of his shell, if not for his own sake, but then for the sake of his children. Seth straightened, shocked, to see that the laundry fiasco had disappeared. Other than the newspaper, which had slipped out of his hands and fell on the carpet, only that, the area resembled the furniture showroom. Inviting, cozy, cozy, tempting. How Emily Merkel and his two Red Books' children had managed to clear away a truckload of clothes without him hearing was short of another supernatural event. Either that or he was more tired than he realized. His interview was interrupted by the sound of footsteps racing down the hallway. Seth lowered the footrest and stood. He found Jason, cheeks rosy red from the bath, wrapped in a large towel. As soon as you're in your pajamas, I'll get my book, the housekeeper offered. You won't fall asleep, will you? The inquiry came from Judd, glanced meaningfully towards Seth. Don't be so hard on your father. He needs to catch up on his sleep. The woman was not only a marvel in the kitchen, she was also a born mind reader. Isn't that right, Mr. Webster? He managed to nod, wondering how she knew he'd been burning the cow on both ends. Do you need me to carry any luggage? Luggage? She repeated. And I looked at the fire flashing in and out of her eyes. Not to worry, I'll get it myself. I insist it was the least I it was the least he could do. All right, getting noticed her hesitation. I believe it should be on the porch. That's right. I left everything on the porch. I was so pleased when I learned of this new assignment that I packed as fast as I could. Seth prayed his twins wouldn't give her a reason to alter her opinion. Tommy was sounded surprisingly lucky him. She returned to the children, ushering them like a mother hen out of the room. Seth couldn't remember a time John and Jason had taken so quickly to anyone. With every other housekeeper that had managed the better part of a week before they'd been comfortable enough to address the woman, to address the woman. But then no housekeeper had arrived for the meal for her king. The vegetables had been so well disguised that neither Judd nor Jason had noticed. Mrs. Miracle, Mrs. Miracle, laughter erupted as the twins rolled out of the bedroom, dressed in their pajamas, their wet hair combed away from their faces. Seth paused, seeing the joy and excitement in their eyes. It was something he viewed only on rare occasions since they moved back in with him. It warmth seeped into his heart. For the first time in a very long while, he had hope for the future. And right here is a recipe for country pot pie. Chapter 4 Harriet Foster prayed with one eye open as she studied the older retired woman in the Tuesday morning Martha and Mary circle. She zeroed her prayer request toward Ruth Darling. Harriet had seen the way the 60-year-old the had been eyeing the new man in church. A married woman, mind you. Why? It was nothing short of scandals. It was difficult enough for a widow like herself to find a new husband without having to compete with a married woman. Dear Lord, Harriet said loudly, making sure her voice carried. I'm sad my sewing with Shane, my singer, Lord, with five separate attachments. Why, Lord? A person could embroider names on the thickest of towels with this machine. Having skirts at the proper length, of course, would be no problem, nor would it be difficult to attach buttons. Those of us suffering our sadness can appreciate a sewing machine with all those built-in extras, she paused, and surveyed the group once more. This modern marvel was reconditioned only six months ago. I'm a reasonable woman, Lord. And you and I both know that my singer, although 10 years old, is well worth the $100 asking price. You placed that figure upon my heart, and I don't feel I can let it go for a penny less. You know that I gladly tilt my 10% of the sales price, too. Now I, now I feel, Lord, that there's someone in this very group of women who can use this machine. Theirs may be out of date or in disrepair. Whatever the reason, they need this machine. I ask, Father, that you lay it upon that person's mind to buy my beautiful, most almost new sewing machine. 
She breathed in deeply and peeked at Ruth's darling to see if the group leader revealed any interest. To her disappointment, she saw nothing. Discouraged, Harriet murmured, Amen. A low murmur of amends followed. Slowly, the women opened their eyes and raised their heads. We'll meet again next week, same time, same place, Ruth darling announced. Harriet noticed a smile wobbling at the edges of Ruth's mouth and wondered what it was that the group leader found so amusing. Ruth lifted up the pouch around her Bible and placed it inside her bag along with the study guide for the book of, uh, for the book of Philippians. The Philippians. I hope I said it right. I don't suppose you'd be interested in buying my singer, would you, Mary asked, quartering Ruth. Sometimes a hint just wasn't strong enough. If ever a woman needed something to occupy her time, it was Ruth. Naturally, it would be considered unkind to mention that she noticed Ruth's roving eye, although Harriet was certain she wasn't the only member of the Martha and Mary circle to recognize what was happening. Personally, Harriet wondered if Fred, if Fred Darling, had wind of it. Fred wasn't the kind of man who would tolerate any hanky-panky from his wife. Ruth glanced up. I have a sewing machine. New? Harriet pressed. Fairly new. I thought you said yours was ten years old. This came from Barbara Newton, and Harriet didn't appreciate it. It is, but as I said earlier, it's been reconditioned. My daughter might be interested. Harriet spun around. Really? The door opened the surf, and then the church secretary, Joanne Lawton, burst into the room. Oh, good, you haven't left yet, ladies, she said. Clearly distressed. I just got off the phone with Millie Waters. Joe's been transferred. It's all rather sudden, and they're leaving within the next two weeks. Really enjoy our movie? Oh, dear, we're going to miss them. A chorus of voices echoed, mixed with excitement and regrets. Joe and Millie returned favorites. Millie's sunny disposition made her a popular Sunday school teacher, and the children loved her. Joe had been a Sunday school superintendent for several years running. They would both be solely, solely missed. What about the Christmas program? Barbara Newton asked. The mood of the room went into a tailspin. Millie had been working with the children for weeks, laying the groundwork for the Christmas pageant. Someone stepping in with just a month to go would have, to, would have big shoes to fill. Harriet took one step backward, not wanting to give the impression that she might be interested. Not her. She served as the deaconess for three years, washing the communion cups after worship service, acting as a greeter. She'd sung with the choir 20 years or better and played piano for more Sunday evening services than she could count. Over the years, she'd done it all and more. Her days of volunteering were over. Some might say she was resting on her laurels and she, and, and, and she left them. The last thing she wanted to need was to direct a group of loud, ungrateful school children. That was a task for the young. Someone with more patience than she. Children, even her nieces, nieces two girls, were one of a handful that she could take, other than in small doses. Never having born children of her own, Harriet fawned over Jane, her only sister's child. She didn't see Jane as often as she would have liked, but then young people didn't respect her elders the way they should. These days, ever since Jane started working at the travel agency with, oh dear, she forgot the woman's name now, she met her once or twice. Reba, that was it. Reba Maxwell. Since Jane had started working with Reba, she hadn't seen near enough of her, or Susie or Cindy. The five and seven-year-olds were as close as to having grandchildren as Harriet was likely to get. The others in the Martha and Mary circle were busy discussing Millie and Joe's move. A low buzz filled the room as speculation arose as to who would assume the director's, excuse me, the director's role the Christmas program. Finding someone, anyone, at this late date would be difficult. Sally couldn't possibly do it, Ruth Darling was telling Joanne. She started back to college. Oh dear, you're right. What about William Munson? She and Larry have already made vacation plans for the holidays, someone responded. Harry and Larry have the possibilities were exhausted and a pregnant pause followed. I know who could do it, she said. Every eye turned to her. She waited until she had the truth's attention. This was almost as good as if she were volunteering herself. My niece. Jane? I'll talk to her myself, Harriet promised. I'm sure she'd love the opportunity to step in at the last minute, like this. Jane's the type of woman who thrives on a challenge. But I thought she just started a new job. 
youth of all people skeptically toward Harriet. That shouldn't be any problem, Harriet returned confidently. I know my niece. She's going to leap at this chance to help out like this. She's a lot like me, you know, a lot like me. Let me straighten up here, chapter five. You did what? Rita Maxwell watched as her friend Jane Preston bolted upright out of her chair, sending a shooting backward into the filing cabinet. Jane's face reflected her outrage. Aunt Harriet, how could you possibly volunteer me? She clapped her mouth shut. Apparently the news didn't get better. Because Jane leaned against the poster of Mickey Mouse, arms extended, inviting everyone to enter the way to go travel. And then the way to go travel agency to explore Disney World. Reba had heard the stories about Jane's aunt from the time she hired her latest employee. Apparently, Auntie was a holier-than-thou type. Personally, Reba got a chuckle hearing about Jane's infamous aunt. She felt more at home attending the church services when she realized there were others besides herself whose lives were in ship-shape order. According to Jane, her aunt Harriet had been a thorn in her side most of her life. Reba could hardly wait to hear what, the, what, that, what that woman had done this time. Reba had hired Jane a few months back. She knew her from church, but only by slight, not by name. Only by sight, not by name. Her own attendance had been sporadic at best, although she enjoyed Pastor Loveless's sermons. After breaking off the relationship with her sister, Reba had avoided church. She wasn't sure what had prompted her to attend at all. Habit, she suspected. Her mother faithfully observed the Lord's Day, and both Reba and her sister had tagged along. While in high school, Reba had gotten involved in the church youth group and played on the church volleyball team. The summer between high school and college, she served as a camp counselor, and she remembered those times fondly. As an adult, she found herself feeling restless and bored Sunday morning, so she began to stop by the she so she began to stop by the local community church. She didn't go often. Every time she was tempted to become more involved, the pastor would preach some stirring message about forgiveness. It stopped her cold. Few people understood that some wrongs could never be forgotten or forgiven. This was a sermon she didn't want to hear, a message she chose to ignore. It had taken her the better part of four months to return after one such sermon. Even at that, she came to recognize a few people, to, a few people, Jane being one of them. She'd hired the young mother because she was a familiar face, someone she knew and wanted to know better. I can't believe it, Jane cried as she replaced the telephone receiver. She wrapped one arm around her middle as if protecting herself. Aunt Harriet's done it again. She slapped her side with her free hand. What's she up to this time, Reba asked. Without consulting me, without so much as asking, she volunteered me to take over the job of coordinator for the Christmas program. Millie Waters was doing it, but apparently Joe's gotten transferred to Oregon. With the move and everything, Millie had to resign. So good old Jane is willing to step in? Jane plopped herself down in her chair once again. Not this time. I can't, Reba. Surely you realize that. Steve's working overtime every night, and no one realizes that when Steve works overtime, so do I. The girls miss their father and don't understand why he's been gone so much. I've been having discipline problems with them, and now my lovely interfering aunt assumes that I'll take on the pressure of organizing and producing a Christmas pageant. I refuse to be emotionally blackmailed. Not this time. You don't need to convince me. You don't know my Aunt Harriet. James wiped the hair off her forehead. She's like a pit bull. I've never seen anything like it. She gets hold of an idea and won't let go. She's going to needle away at me, push all my buttons, and remind me of everything she's ever done for me. And before I know how it happened, I'll give in. Will you really? Reba was more sympathetic than she sounded. In a number of ways, Jane's Aunt Harriet reminded her of her own mother. Ever since her falling out with Vicky, although that was pretty of mildly, Reba's mother had hounded her to mend fences with her sister. Like Jane's Aunt Harriet, Joe Maxwell didn't give up easily either. Jane glanced anxiously towards Reba. Come to church with me on Sunday, will you? Me? If Jane couldn't dissuade good old Aunt Harriet, it was unlikely Reba could do a better job. Steve won't be able to come. He has worked every Sunday for the, past, for the last month. And Aunt Harriet is sure to corner me, especially with Steve out there. She has a way of getting to me. 
and you want me there to water off? No, well, yes. You don't know my Aunt Harriet. Before I can help it, she'll have me back up against the wall. Reba hesitated. Maybe deep down you're secretly dying to take over the Christmas pageant. Jay mocked her with an abrupt laugh. Read my lips. I refuse to do this just because my Aunt Harriet thinks I should. Her eyes softened as she looked imploringly at Reba. You'll come, won't you? Reba didn't refuse. This could prove to be downright entertaining. Besides, she'd like to formally meet Harriet. I'll be there. I wouldn't think of it, smiling to herself. I'm sorry. I'll be there. Don't let me down, Jane pleaded. I wouldn't think of it, smiling to herself. Reba returned the task at hand. Sorry, I got somehow distracted. The phone peeled again and sent her over to the employees around their lunch break, and Jane remained shaken after the confrontation with her aunt. Reba answered it herself. Way to go, travel. Hello, sweetheart. Hi, Mom. So Reba was due to face her own nemesis. It must be the day for it, she reflected. I hate to pester you at the office. You're not bit. You're not busy, are you? She opened her mouth to say that she was in the middle of something important. Her mother didn't need to know it was merely alphabetizing her Rolex cars. She wasn't given the chance. I promised to only keep you a moment. Mom, it's about Christmas. Haven't we already been through this? No, her mother denied. Sweetheart, it's less than a month away. Her mother held true to course. Hurt, anger, guilt, in that precise order. It astonished Reba how the routine didn't waver. Year after year, battle after battle. Reba replaced the telephone receiver and released the pent-up sigh. Your mother? She asked. She nodded. A part of her wanted to explain what had happened, but she bit her tongue. Few people truly understood, and deep down, she feared Jay would be like all the rest. She didn't want advice, didn't want to hear that it would be far wiser to sell her differences with Vicky. Nor was she seeking pity. All she wanted was for someone to recognize that she'd been wrong. I need to run some errands, she announced suddenly. Will you be all right by yourself? What Reuben really did was a few minutes alone to compose herself. Sure, Jane assured her, although they both knew it wasn't true. Office procedure stated that no employee should be left alone to deal with both the phone and the foot traffic. I'll be back shortly, Reba promised on her way out the door. Take however long you need. Sunday morning, Reba arrived for the worship service ten minutes early, knowing Jane would be waiting anxiously for her. She stood inside the vestibule as the organ music filled the small sanctuary. She didn't have long to wait. Jane, with her two daughters in tow, arrived shortly. Thank goodness you're here. Have you met up with Aunt Harriet? Not yet. I managed to escape her just now in the hallway outside the crow's Sunday school classroom. I pretended not to hear her. Mom, can I sit with Becky? Seven-year-old Susie tugged seriously. Even my daughter's looking for a way of avoiding my hat. Jane whispered out the corner of her mouth. Can I, Mom? All right, but no talking, understand? Susie was off like a shot. Let's take a seat, Jane heard, glancing over her shoulder. She accepted a bulletin from one of the deaconesses, who acted as a greeter slithered up the side aisle, speaking Reba assumed the one spot in the entire church where Aunt was willing to see her. Now that Jane had much chance of, not that Jane had much chance of escaping, the inevitable, Reba suspected. Oh, good, Jane muttered after they were seated. Cindy sat between them on the hard wooden pew. What? Reba whispered. Aunt Harriet's playing the organ. Reba's gaze sat out the middle-aged woman sitting at the organ. She didn't mean to smile, but she would have been able to pick up but she would have been able to tell James Aunt Harriet from a police lineup. Her only words or asked that seemed to suggest anything fashionable must surely be sin. <laughs> her glasses went down on her nose so far, they threatened to glide right off. Her pinched lips made her look as if it required a substantial effort to smile. You see her, Jane asked, leaning into her, leaning her head close to Reba. Six-year-old Cindy pressed her finger to her lips and glared accusingly at the two adults. Smiling to herself, Reba straightened and focused her attention straight ahead. She'd come for the express purpose of limiting her friend's moral support, but she was glad she'd come. The music, even if played by Aunt Harriet, was wonderful. 
An older woman entered the church around portly soul, grandmotherly and kind looking. She paused her gaze gentle, yet focused as she looked squarely in Reba's direction as well as if she'd known Reba her entire life. The directness of the stare caught her unaware. The other woman's eyes brightened as she nodded, as if acknowledging someone. Rita supposed her face was new, and the woman was making an effort to welcome her. She responded with a smile. To puzzle her further, the woman glanced pointedly over her shoulder at a man with two small children at his side. Rita's gaze followed the woman. It was him. Him. The man she'd seen so often in the grocery house in the grocery outside the strip mall. The very one who captured her attention weeks earlier. The one she found herself looking for day after day. The one who seemed as needy as she was herself. And then the lost soul in the world full of walking full of the walking wounded. Who's that? she asked, repeating his leave in the same urgent manner in which her young daughter had earlier. Who? Jane asked, holding her head close to Rebus. The man with the children. That's Jen and Jason Webster, said he supplied, drawing, da drawing daisies on the church bulletin. They're in my Sunday school class. They're twins. He's married. He's married then. Reba's heart sank. Realization. Jane looked at her, her daughter. Cindy shook her head. Their mommy died in a car accident a long time ago. They don't even remember what she looks like. You know his name? Cindy nodded. Her grin spread from ear to ear. Obviously, she was pleased to be the center of attention. The one with all the answers. That's Mr. Webster, their dad. All right, guys. That takes us into Chapter 6 for next week. And I hope you uh, enjoyed it. It's a great book so far. And uh, we'll uh, read again next week, starting in Chapter 6 from Mrs. Miracle. Anyway, don't forget, tomorrow we'll be on at 6.30 at our usual time. Uh, doing the California Haunts Radio Show. And I'm turning everything off here. And I look forward to seeing you guys. We're going to have a photographer on who takes ghost pictures, Tim Scullion. And he takes some really, really dramatic ghost pictures. So I think you're going to like it. And I'll have a little slideshow set up and everything. So I will see you guys tomorrow. Have a good day. And Merry Christmas.